Welcome back to Leaders in EDI, the podcast series where we shine a light on the progress being made and the challenges being faced in EDI across sport and neighbouring industries. I'm Jade Amies, I'm the producer of this podcast, and I am joined by my esteemed colleague, Javana Dega. Say hello to the people, Jav. Hello, hello. Kind, kind intro. <laughs> um, so we usually focus on the sports industry on this podcast. So now we're back for season two, we saw an opportunity to get a more holistic look at the EDI sector. So for this season, we thought we would feature leaders from outside of sports. So we'll be asking them about specific EDI issues they face in their space, identify any parallels to sport and see what we can learn from their approach. Jav, who are we speaking to this episode? We're speaking to our favourite industry of food, hospitality and beverages. And the individual which we've drawn upon to speak to that is Jackson McClarty. Um, Jackson, firstly friend of mine, someone that I've got to know and um, over the last couple of years through our joint love slash pain of being a fan of Arsenal Football Club. He is many things in terms of entrepreneur, intelligent, forward thinking, and I think he encapsulated all those things in lockdown, which I think a lot of us were given the time to kind of go away. And that idea or that dream which we once had, that we had no time for, and now had all this time for, let's try and bring it to life. And he did just that with what we now known as Black Eats London. So um, Black Eats London is a effectively a, a directory of food vendors and restaurants of predominantly black west african and caribbean origin and jackson basically started the idea of bringing together all these sometimes overlooked and underrepresented eateries to have a, a designated space where they can come together in a sense of community showcasing their food their craftsmanship um the flavors, the music, the vibe. So it's, I always say it's like it's mini carnival every month is what he brings to um, Hackney. Nice. Um, so when we said that we were going to be speaking to different industries, I'm willing to bet that the first industry that came to people's mind wasn't food and beverages, um, let alone to open the season. So why food and beverages? What did you talk about? Um, you probably wouldn't assume we would go to this industry when you look at the DNI landscape outside of sport. And I think that in itself meant it's of interest. And you'd be so surprised when you dive deep into it of the various elements of lack of representation, um, inclusion and, and diversity across the board from your Michelin star level chefs all the way down to the reflection of how these cuisines are, are mismanaged and managed when it comes to culture appropriation and things of that nature. So when we kind of viewed it as, hey, everybody eats, everybody drinks, it's, it's a realm we can all comprehend with and deal with day to day. So let's actually uncover some of the, the truths and perhaps the misunderstood elements of it. And because it's something that we do just partake as something we do almost unconsciously when you go about it's so intrinsic to our culture basically our our different cultures you you kind of overlook some of the issues or challenges that is actually within the industry by the people on the ground working in it day to day so jackson he's now birthed a concept which sees it more than just being a vessel of providing food and, and drink or service he's now created an element of identity belonging and, and and culture which transcends and needs to be spoken to. So that's why we kind of landed upon this industry being for the opening episode. 
And it is a delectable conversation, a auditory delight about culinary delights. So let's hear from Jackson McClarty. Jackson McClarty, consultant, head researcher, writer, critic, event curator, and founder of Black Eats London. I'm not sure if you're someone who, who's fixed on titles per se, <laughs> but um, would I be right in assuming that the latter maybe your biggest personal achievement to date? Um, I wouldn't say that titles really matter to me either. And I think what I do is very difficult to describe because I would say it's a lot of innovative work. Um, but yeah, for me, I'm more about the actual work itself as opposed to a title. Okay. Obviously, we're here today to broadly speaking, look at the world of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And the lens we've just presented to date have always been looking at the sports world and mm-hmm. looking at how that tends to meander and make its way into different pockets. But for this season, we were kind of coming with a whole different new lens perspective. We were keen to look at outside perspectives and an interesting one, which I think relates to everybody, is the world of food and, and beverages, let's say. And um, when I came to thinking who better to really speak to that, and not so from a perspective of just being in the industry, but who's at the crux of the industry transitioning to speak to where society is now. And Black East London yourself came straight to mind. So thank you for finding the time to come to the studio today. My pleasure. And um, we're looking forward to our discussion, which will be a wide ranging overview of what this world means to you, but Mm -hmm. more importantly, what it means to the world of community, and to the world of DNI moving forward. So, by way of definition, um, Black East London is the home of the UK's first and only Black-owned restaurant directory. What does that mean to you? And since when that definition was written down or came to mind, mm-hmm. how has that expanded since in terms of what Black Eats represents today? Yeah, definitely. So, I think if we can kind of rewind. Uh, back to lockdown uh, in 2020. I'm sure you remember. C- crazy time. You know, very isolated times. You know, a lot of people stuck indoors. As as fun as things were getting at the time was to go outside for your 30 minutes of daily exercise. And you better make sure you're running because, you know, people are watching. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was kind of around the time where things really kicked off. At the time as well, there was a lot of discussion around supporting local, um, people were talking about um, not shopping at big stores like Amazon, et cetera. And for me at the time, I was kind of looking around and looking at my own spending habits and thinking, what could I do to create a better community, a better place, a better world, if you want to call it that, as things are kind of growing. Um, so with that, I looked at what were my passions, mm-hmm. what were my, if you want to call it my, what I had experience in through, you know, jobs, through extracurricular through kind of just daily life, if you want to call it that. And those two things were kind of IT and business, which is what I kind of studied and what I did for nine to five um, in my career. And then the foodie side of things. So just like you, you know, we love to eat, you love to explore, let's try new things, let's try new cuisines, new restaurants, etc. cetera. Um, so that was a thing where I thought, okay, bringing those two things together, the technology and the hospitality of what was a passion, bridging those two together, I looked at how could I support the community by bringing those things together. And for me, that was, okay, the real key thing that I saw was missing at the time was the education of what are the black owned restaurants in London and how can we support them? I think for myself, I could probably name maybe, let's say 
between five and 10 black owned restaurants in, in London, whether or not they were actually dining experiences or takeaways is another question. Um, whether they were actually black owned, that's another question. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of that information I kind of had to sit down and dig out um, by, you know, scraping the internet, going to places in person, meeting people on, um, through Instagram, Facebook, et cetera, online channels, emails. Um, and that's how originally the directory started. So it was through kind of gathering all that information together and creating a educational resource that people could access for free and know where to support these black owned restaurants. So I think education was the first part of actually providing the knowledge on where these restaurants were. Um, so yeah, that's how things originally started <laughs> with that directory, which was only a hundred restaurants at the time. Um, and those hundred restaurants we launched in August, 2020. Another throwback for you is Eat Out to Help Out Scheme. I don't know if you remember that one, yes, but uh, that was the- uh, I remember it very well, I remember it very well. Yeah, so that was, I think it was a 30 pound spend and you got 50% off of a food products only. Um, so we used that as kind of an incentive for people to support the restaurants we had on the directory. So what I did at the time was from those hundred restaurants on the directory, I cross-referenced them all with the .gov website, which showed you if the restaurant was participating in Eat Out to Help Out. Um, so I went on there, looked at all the postcodes for all these hundred restaurants. Um, I think about 45 out of the hundred were participating in the scheme. Added that as a filter on the website. And that was what we used as initially to kind of push people to support these restaurants, try something new, go somewhere new, and even just get out of the house. Because at the time, you know, people were fearful. They didn't want to leave their house because they might, you know, catch something and potentially mm-hmm. get sick. Um, I think obviously the situation we are in now and on reflection, you know, we can say this and that. But at the time, you know, people were um, kind of hesitant to leave. So um, that's how things originally started. But of course, they've kind of grown over the years since then. We, we love a great origin story. Um, so I'd be right in assuming then, if there is no lockdown, that there is no Black Eats London effectively. It's highly likely. It's highly likely. I think all of that spare time, if you want to call it that, yeah. where, you know, you have your 40 hours or 37 and a half of your nine to five, then you have, you know, your fun on the weekend and so on and so forth. I think that regular pattern probably would have continued without a lockdown. But whereas when you're locked down, you're with your thoughts, you're thinking, what can I do with this time? You're in your thoughts of what can I do to make this place a better place? Um, I think that is probably what spurred me on to actually create the thing in the first place. Love it. And um, you made mention to the few words, which definitely um, stood out to me, education and community. And I think when you put the two together, you then find yourself looking around, what is the purpose? What what is the mission? What Mm -hmm. are we looking to do through the aim of of what we pull together? And um, I was going to put a statement of a quote from yourself and Mm -hmm. let's get your initial thinking on it. And it is, Black East London has a mission to break down barriers for black owned businesses. Um, this year will mark three years of being on that, on that mission effectively. Uh, how's that mission going? Yeah, I think we're definitely breaking down barriers actively and in the past and in the future. Um, I think those barriers are across multiple different avenues, channels, skill sets, um, industries. There are various different barriers. Um, I think one thing we've kind of taken through our events is, you know, there's always that kind of uh, quote of like, what do you bring to the table? Yeah. Um, and I think what we've done is we've brought our table and we've brought people to the table. So instead of asking for that seat at the table, we've created our own platform, which is what you see in Black and Hackney, which is an event, which is some people are quoting the hottest market in London right now. Um, in terms of footfall, it definitely is. Um, and we've been able to kind of bring food businesses into opportunities they wouldn't have previously had. Um, going back to summer last year, we hosted a all August uh, pop-up, which was Monday to Sunday, literally all of August. 
Uh, we had the first barbecue in Somerset House, which for me, you know, we love a jerk pan. Yeah. <laughs> we love a jerk pan. <laughs> so that was quite an iconic moment. And since then, we've gone on to bring restaurants into big scale festivals as well. Uh, talking about festivals like City Splash in May, Cross the Tracks, uh, Wide Awake, Mighty Hoopla, etc. So these are all festivals with, you know, 30,000 capacities, which coming into that industry and looking at that industry previously, the representation was less than 5% before we actually went in. That would be one or two, you know, black owned restaurants. Now we're bringing 10, 11, 12, 15, 30, 40 sometimes. So um, yeah, we're really trying to break down those barriers and give access um, to these spaces. Have, have you encountered challenges in terms of, of your entry point into this market where you're seeing and viewing it as hey, I'm here for the greater good effectively. Mm -hmm. Have you noticed some obstacles in the way which you probably didn't realise or, or think will be in place mm -hmm. before walking into the, this new lane? Yeah, yeah. So I think for myself, coming from a non-events, non-hospitality, basically nothing to do with what I'm actually doing now, if you want to call it that, in terms <laughs> yeah. of like um, qualifications, if you want to call it formal qualifications, that now it's kind of like, I've learned a lot of things within those industries to understand why those barriers are there or why those barriers may have been there. Um, and that could be something as simple as documentation. So something like festivals, you know, this documentation and all of that stuff is at a very high level. Um, and I think there's a gap in the education or the knowledge that is required to get to that point. Um, and I think that's where something that we help to, you know, fill that void, fill that gap and provide feedback to these business owners as opposed to, you know, the generic, just like you do when you apply for a job. Sorry, you've not been successful on this occasion. We look forward to your future application, da 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 da, da. Um, But instead we take the time to say, look, this particular document is missing this. This particular document is missing. This one is expired. All of those things to help people get to that space where when they submit their application to this space, the first thing they're not gonna get is a rejection email, but a you know, we'd love to have you or maybe next year or how about this festival so that people think they're actually serious when they go to these things. Um, so I think that's one thing is kind of that me filling my knowledge yeah. through these things, through experience, through doing these events and being able to pass that down to these restaurants and not kind of gatekeep this information, which a lot of industries, you know, people have been doing it for 10, 20, 30 years and, you know, they want to keep that to themselves. They don't want to let the newcomers come in. And I think one thing that we're able to do is, by providing access to this kind of new cohort or new generation of food vendors or restaurant owners um, is we're actually able to increase the quality that is actually out there in these festivals nowadays. Cause I went to wireless, I think it was, you know, a couple of years ago, I think uh, I was looking at buying something and I saw curly fries for like 10 pounds. And I was like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> this is ridiculous. Like these are some Iceland curly fries for 10 pounds. Yeah. Like, no. Um, so yeah, I think we're able to kind of get these guys who've been doing it and basically exploiting people and ripping people off for all this time and create a more kind of even battle uh, battle playing field. Yeah, and, and I love the way you mentioned access there because I think it's about generating and not only generating access points, but sustaining it moving mm -hmm. forward. Because it's so great to be invited to the party, but if no one asks me to dance, then my experience and what I'm being shown by way of equity, of course, never be the same. Mm -hmm. um, moving forward, I think... Um, we can go into our first bite, let's say effectively, as we move the conversation along. I was thinking it would have been great to have a selection of food right now in front of <laughs> us. We had a little taste test as we go along. But um, food, um, it evokes feelings, it has meaning, and consequently it has significance. Mm -hmm. In your opinion, obviously you have your 
pre-existing understanding how you grew up traditions and now you've probably immersed yourself in a whole new world so mm-hmm. we learned so much around the meaning of food yeah but in your opinion what is the, the cultural significance of food to community and then for arcs to the black community on top mm-hmm. of that yeah so i think when i started black eats in general i think given that i was focusing on food was a key thing for me I mean, there's other platforms, other great platforms like, you know, UK Jammy, there's Black Pound Day, who kind of focus on a more broad spectrum of black owned businesses. You know, it's all categories. Whereas myself, as I wanted to link my actual passion, which was, you know, going to restaurants, dining out, going for drinks with friends, all those kind of things. That was kind of my personal connection to why it is, you know, Black Eats rather than, you know, Black everything, or if you want to call it that. (laughs) Um, And then also the fact of everybody eats. You know, mm-hmm. that could be the new slogan. Everybody eats, um, whether you're white, black, mixed, Chinese, Asian, Caribbean, African, every continent, everybody eats on this earth. So that was one thing that could connect us. Um, I think food is something that has a lot of connections in terms of, you know, memories. You're thinking, oh, I remember when I had that at my auntie's house. I had that at my grandma's house. I had that one on my holiday in Barbados or whatever that is. So there's a lot of emotion a lot of connections, whether that be positive or negative, historical, um, that kind of connect people to food and everyone can enjoy and explore other cultures through food as well. So I think it's one of the best connectors out there. Um, And that's something that I recognize and it's something I use to my advantage to bring people together. To your point of everybody eats, um, Black Eats London has showcased nearly 400 restaurants at its events and street food spots. So one would assume you've obviously encountered numerous of restaurateurs and, and businesses um, from our rare backgrounds. And just to pinpoint, you mentioned obviously grandmas and, and mums in your reference there. Mm-hmm. And the point I was hoping we could speak to is the place that women play when it comes to the food and community. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, traditionally, I would say, we will be other thinking that women have been found to say spend most time in the kitchen within the mm-hmm. house, which is obviously at the heart of the home effectively. However, ironically, when you look at the professionalism of the food industry, which is effectively represented by chefs, mm-hmm. 100% male dominated. Just from your experience, why do you think when it comes to gender balance, there are so much more male chefs in, in this space as opposed to, to women who effectively origins tell us are, are the ones who provide the food for the home? Yeah, I think in terms of hospitality, I don't think it's that much different to other kind of um, industries, if you want to call it that. I think there's always been that imbalance in, you know, remuneration or representation um, within all industries. And I think that also does flow through to hospitality. Mm. Um, I think what I'm seeing personally from my own experiences is that there are a lot of women in these spaces that I am intentionally giving the opportunity to. Um, so I think it's not necessarily that the talent is the, isn't there or that um, people are shy or don't want to do this kind of thing or I don't want to be in a kitchen or those types of things or because of the stigma around it. Um, I think those people are out there. I just don't think that people are giving them the opportunity to be in those spaces. I think that's probably where the gap is. Um, and that's something that we do with intention across all of our activities, whether that be the person who designs our graphics, the person who takes our photos, the person who DJs at the event, the person who's cooking the food, the person who's hosting the event, the person who's, you know, all different aspects of all of our suppliers. We make a real intentional effort to support women in what we do. So I think 
it's not necessarily a thing of them not being there. It's a thing of them not being given the opportunity to show that they're just as good, or if not better than their male counterparts. No, I fully agreed. And um, Black Heats London is centered on diversity and inclusion. It's something that I can visibly see and from attending the event feel is it's kind of ingrained in it, in its fabrics and it's in the pot effectively as mm-hmm. you stir and cook. Um, it'd be good to understand for you how you've, I wouldn't say dealt with the battle, but you can let me know if you deem it as a battle or something that's come to territory, mm-hmm. but you find yourself uniquely positioned to speak and engage with the black community um, through our love of food. Mm-hmm but also have the equal weighing of it being a entry point to educate and bring in other communities to understand yeah. and to kind of partake in our culture and our traditions via mm-hmm. the means of food. What one weighs more in your mind or how do you deal with kind of speaking to both parties and, and pleasing both effectively? Yeah. So I think like one thing that was kind of a key pillar of like the brand from day one was inclusivity. Mm -hmm. So not just diversity of saying, you know, black restaurants, but the inclusivity part of it. So we made sure that our website was extremely accessible. So on the website, you can go down there, you can see things such as, does it have wheelchair access? That's something that we focus on that I bet, you know, Open Table, TripAdvisor, nothing on them. They're great platforms. They probably don't go into that detail. Um, Stuff like whether a restaurant is vegan friendly, if it has vegetarian options, whether it's halal, whether it's pescatarian, so on and so forth. Um, all of these dietary requirements, all of these, um, I guess, social kind of aspects are all considered when we look at a restaurant and all of our events that we do, we always make sure there's a good balance of vegan food there. Um, so we partner with a, a brand called Vegan Friendly UK. And so literally our events, usually it's about 25% upwards are vegan friendly. So I think by creating a inclusive atmosphere, whether that be through the food that then flows through into the other aspects such as you know, people's genders, people's, you know, uh, sexual identifications, all of those different things, they flow on from the level that we set and that we kind of put out there. So it's more of a thing of attracting what you're putting out into that world, mm-hmm. as opposed to trying to, you know, partner with these other groups who are going to bring those people to your event. People are organically coming because they feel included. They feel welcomed. They feel comfortable. They feel at home when they're actually at our events and in our spaces. So I think that's something that we've planned to do from day one and something that we currently do. So I think it doesn't come as an effort or an additional layer we have to add because it's something that's built in from the start. Um, So I think we naturally will do and will attract people from all races. Of course, when you look at our events, you know, it's probably maybe 70% 70 black people there and the rest from all different groups. People travel from all around the world um, to come to our events. So, um, yeah, I think it's, of course, a thing where people are attracted to the foods that are from their home. Of course, they want to try those. You know, people maybe are coming down to the event thinking, I've never seen a Grenadian restaurant in London. Let me go try it at Black Eats today. Yeah. You know, um, there might be someone from another community saying, oh, I've heard about uh, Trinidadian cuisine. I'm Indian. I know the influence of India in the Caribbean. Let me go try that today. So I think just through the diversity of what we have there, that naturally brings people in. Brilliant. And what I think Black Heats also represents is a, so it's a great gateway and a great platform for upcoming or, or starter businesses to really platform themselves. Um, just came to mind to ask, as any like success stories or any case studies can speak to of said a restaurant who mm-hmm. literally were at the infancy stages and have gone on to, to great things since being a part or associated with yourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, we've got a brand uh, that used to trade with us back in 2020 and 20, sorry, 2021 and 2022. 
Um, it was called Jamdalish. Yeah. It's a vegan Caribbean restaurant in Angel. Um, if you search them up on Instagram now, I don't have to say anymore. Um, <laughs> but yeah, they're doing great things right now. We've had other brands that are, you know, selling stuff like hot sauces, such as Leslie Sauces. Um, she's now stocked in Whole Foods, the first woman-owned Caribbean brand in Whole Foods at all. Um, so yeah, we've kind of hit these milestones by providing that pedestal from whether it's a, a dark kitchen, whether it's a business from home, whether it's a lockdown project. Obviously, lockdown's kind of ended now, but a lot yeah. of things did uh, were born out of it, just like myself. Um, that have gone on to do, you know, bricks and mortar, big things, festivals around, you know, the UK, international events. Um, so yeah, we understand that we're not the the be all and end all. This is not the the last stop on the train. There are bigger things to go on and do for um, for those businesses. But we love to be a part of the journey and help them to get that initial kind of platform and then go on and fly and do bigger and better things. I'm Max Barnett from Delta Tray. And I'm David Cushnan from Leaders. And in season one of The Blueprint, our podcast series on strategic thinking in sport, we chatted with strategic leaders from the Football Association, Formula E, Seattle Sounders, New York Jets, New York Yankees and Sky Sports. Fascinating in-depth conversations with people at the heart of conceptualising, executing and delivering on strategy. And great news, Max, we've got a second series. We're going to have another set of conversations and this time we want to dig into the heart of great strategy with people who are deep in the weeds of doing it day in, day out. Yeah, DC. And if season one was very much around the why and the what and some great conversations there, second season is really getting into the how of how people are executing strategy because it's often not publicly shared and uh, we're not really seeing the day-to-day in terms of the execution. So we're putting the call out to you, the sports industry. If you know someone who is doing this stuff brilliantly or differently, let us know. David.Cushnan at leadersinsport.com or at David Cushnan on Twitter or via either of us on LinkedIn. And join us soon for season two of The Blueprint. We're looking forward to it from Delta Tray and Leaders. Obviously, the, the previous question and a brilliant segue is obviously we mentioned to how other communities are able to partake and obviously consume mm-hmm. our, our cult, the, the culture, um, literally. Then there is another conversation to be had when it comes down to almost partaking and also taking from. Mm-hmm. And gentrification, it's a term which we're very familiar with, love yeah. it or love it, um, has a pros and its cons. But a term which is becoming a lot more commonplace is um, the ethnic gentrification of, of food mm-hmm. and what that essentially means is is other cuisines literally repurposing food from other origins traditionally at high prices mm-hmm. what's your take on that generally do you see it as a great tool for amplifying the awareness and the business of said cuisines or do you see it as kind of a take and nothing's pulled back into the communities where you're taking those dishes from mm-hmm. or inspired by yeah i think the probably key word for this is authenticity yeah um i think that's probably one of the key metrics to tip the balance either way for me when it comes to that conversation of is the origins being respected are the originators of that thing respected are the ingredients for that thing respected mm. are the people of that respected i think those are the kind of questions to ask when people are whether you want to call it representing or misrepresenting things. uh, I think those are the things to consider. Um, I think there definitely are people out there that are showing a uh, misrepresentation of Caribbean food, no names. 
um, that are out there and, yeah. you know, just a few happy hours and cocktails will get people in the mood to, you know, forget what the food tastes like. Um, but again, there are some out there that are, you know, paying homage and bringing chefs through of that culture um, to actually, you know, make sure that they're giving a proper representation of these dishes or of these cultures and providing a more authentic experience. So I think there are kind of different approaches to how various people have taken it and are continue to take it and will continue mm-hmm. to take from it. But I think it's more of a thing of how do you know where you're going if you don't know where you're coming from? That's yeah, the kind of key precisely. thing. Um, so if people take the, or have the respect to go out and do their research and bring the right people in, then you can create something which is great. And people of that country's origin will have a lot more respect for it. But of course we're in the UK, we're a minority. We might be, let's say five, 10% of the people who actually know what this thing tastes like authentically. So they're just trying to please the other 90%, do you know what I mean? Um, so I understand both sides of the coin, if you want to call it that. Um, but there definitely are people who could be doing a lot better. So when we look at cultural um, appropriation happening in the industry, would you implore it with the muse of has to be done done authentically? So for the, let's say, listeners who are upcoming brands or Mm -hmm. restaurants or who are keen to engage and have a variety of different foods on their menu, where would you start to authentically engage with a community first before you can actually showcase and provide their culture via means of food on your menus? Mm-hmm. So I would say the research is probably the first step. Yeah. So even black chefs and black authors out there are doing research to find out more. You know, if you're born in the UK, you might even want to go back to Jamaica. You might want to go back to Ghana. You might want to go back to Nigeria to learn about you know, even the tools that are used to create these foods in the first place, I think that's the kind of level that people need to go to or at least aspire to go to. Um, and even I've seen the chef, um, Melissa, with her new book, which is um, a Jamaican recipe book. Um, and she went to Jamaica. She looked at where they grow the pimento, where they get the wood from, where they get this ingredient from. That's the kind of level she's gone to to make sure as a black person, mm-hmm. she's representing Jamaica appropriately. So I think that's the kind of detail that if you really want to be conscious and authentic in what you're doing, that's what you need to do. I've seen restaurants where people go to Barbados once and they open a Jamaican restaurant and assuming that the whole Caribbean is one thing. There you go. You know, even calling a restaurant a Jamaican restaurant because it's got, you know, jerk chicken on the menu and then it goes off to have, you know, halloumi and all of this other stuff that you'd never find in Jamaica and just because, hmm, well, let's just call it all the same thing. So I think there is like a lot of that kind of, you know, is what it is kind of approach. Um, But if you really want to do it, the people are out there. You know, it's going to take time. You're going to have to find them. Bring that re- that chef into the room. Speak to him. Go to that country. Look what it's like for the locals. And I think that's where you really start to find the truth when you look at the origins. Oh, I agree fully. And um, it's kind of the essence of trying to dismiss the, the mindset of taking shortcuts for what effectively is a short-term game because effectively the food will be found out or be called out and, and you effectively lose out mm-hmm. more so. And um, what I was hoping to, to move into, and hey, somehow we were going to bring sport back into the conversation, weren't mm-hmm. we? But when we caught up a few weeks back, you raised a really interesting point to me, which is kind of looking at the diversity of the fan experience when it comes to, to food, whether it be 
any sport, when you rock up, we're very, losing football as an example, mm-hmm. we're very used to the traditional drink, whether it be a pint or an alcoholic beverage, your pie, your chips, your hot dog, your burgers. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing now how clubs have, are becoming a international hub, whether it be overseas, whether it be the influx of fans from different countries yeah. on the turn up on the match day itself. How do you view the hospitality and cuisine industry in the sports industry as a whole? And what lessons do you think are there to be learned effectively as we speak today? Personally, from my experience, um, I've, well, first of all, I'm an Arsenal fan. (laughs) (laughs) Comments, chill. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I'm an Arsenal fan. I've been to, you know, probably hundreds of games. Yeah. Talking home games, away games in the UK, away games around Europe. Yeah, I've heard about your cold um, away days before. <laughs> yeah, you know, going to places like Ukraine, going to, you know, Bayern and losing 5-1. You know, I've been through it, I've been through yeah, it. it. Makes you stronger, right? Exactly. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger, as they say. Um, so yeah, I think I've kind of experienced the diversity of cuisine at these grounds, you know, going to Ren away and, you know, there being baguettes, stuff like that. Yeah. You know, in the UK... I would say it's probably one of the least diverse kind of cuisines in terms of what they provide. Mm. Like you mentioned previously, you're going to have, you know, your pies, you're going to have your pasties, you might have some chips, you might have a butty, something like that. (laughs) And then drinks wise, you know, it's pretty much beer, ciders, maybe a white or red wine if you're feeling classy, you know, that might be available or a Robinson fruit shoot, something like that. Depending on what part of the stadium you're in as well. Exactly, exactly. So those are the kind of like starter points when it comes to hospitality for the, if you want to call it the average fan rather than a club level fan or, you know, the the more expensive ticket where you might get a sit down dinner and a little bit of a different experience. But I think those are the typical things that you do find at stadiums. And I think it does probably stem from the traditional fan if you want to call it that who um i guess still are a big representation of football right Mm -hmm. now and that's the kind of thing that they do want to eat um i think there probably are people within that who are a little bit more exploratory in terms of like what they would go for whether that be you know looking at bringing a jerk chicken pie rather than you know uh curry because even the curry pies that's a indian influence which has come from the midlands right yeah so there already is kind of certain fusions, if you want to call it that, yeah, in the, the space. Fusions, yeah. um, but I think there definitely is a long, long way to go. I think we played Tottenham, I think it was probably about three or four years ago at Wembley. And I remember at Wembley, because it's more of a um, multi-purpose stadium, their hospitality system is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. And I think they have that because of the other events they do there, you know, the concerts and that kind of stuff. And I remember they had, I think it was some kind of wings for sale with all the garnishing and all that kind of stuff. And I was look, I was looking, I thought that's really good. And I could hear people over like, oh, we're coming to a football match. We don't want to eat that rubbish. We just want this, we just want that. So I think, you know, those might be the five or 10% who are demanding that, but they are very loud. Yeah. So I think those other 90% who may be open to trying something else, that's a real gap right now, which I feel hasn't really been explored. Um, and I think as long as things are, I think probably easy to eat, I think that's probably the key thing. You don't want to be getting messy hands course, and all yeah. that kind of stuff. Usually people are just, you know, rubbing a few crumbs off their hands after <laughs> a pasty or a pie. Um, so I think, yeah, I think there's definitely room to do more on that. And I think definitely in the club level experiences, there's a lot of room to do that. Um, I think pizzas, pie, burgers, mash, like, you know, come on now, we're in 2023. There's a lot to be done. And even even to that point as well, I think it also presents a, a great 
get away for further education. So for instance, say during half term, half time, I have jollof rice available on the menu mm-hmm. for that person without jollof rice. And then you then start to open up other conversations. Oh yeah, it's, it's a Ghanaian dish or Nigerian dish, West African. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, Saka, Thomas Partey. You then find yourselves becoming more educated around not only who plays for your club, but also the fans mm-hmm. engage your club as well. So um, yeah, I've always thought to myself as well, this have, hopefully should be an opportunity to present food which reflects your, your fan base, especially yeah. the communities which you serve and speak to more importantly. Yeah, yeah I think 100% because if you look at the diversity of football, I think it's a very diverse sport in terms of what's on the field. Yeah. I think as we start to step away from the field is where things get less diverse. So I think definitely there's a lot to be done there. And that could be something that could be, you know, programmed within the match day program where we say, look, today we're exploring the cuisine of this particular player who plays for this club. Mm. It's on the menu for today only. And use that as an actual sample to say, okay, that sold out quicker than this is selling out. Maybe that's something we should integrate forward. Maybe it didn't sell at all. We shouldn't have that. Maybe we approach it in a different way. I think there's a lot of like opportunities to explore this um, and very creative ways to do it. And by, if you want to call it engaging people outside of the food through something else they can relate to, like you said, the player's nationality, or maybe it's even people like Aaron Ramsdale. I saw he had an interview the other day saying that, I think it was curry goat rice and peas is his favorite Favorite meal. Yeah, when when he had digs. um... You know, Ramsdale's loving it. It's not just Saka (laughs) and not just Partey. You know, there's plenty of people outside of, if you want to call it the culture of that cuisine that are enjoying Mm. these foods already. I think you're onto something there, Jackson. Um, one thing you you definitely brought there, which probably summarizes that point to a nutshell, is, is cost, which obviously is attached to most things in life. Mm-hmm. And as we speak, obviously facing a cost of living crisis, uh, as we are now in, um, we're seeing knock-on effects. And of course, we've looked at diversity and inclusion, but we also look at that on a economic level as well uh, and the barriers which are in place mm-hmm. um, socioeconomically. What's your general thoughts on how the more nutritional food, which is more palatable, food which is generally proven to be better fuel for your body, seems to be, to be priced at points which the majority just can't tend to afford. How do you, you view the thinking along those lines of how there's affordability, but also the food we need for our bodies way up as a conversation. Yeah, I think that's definitely a difficult one, I would say. Yeah. Um, I think obviously there always will be that kind of difference in price, regardless of how of much you want to kind of do things. I think there's, if we're talking about sports specifically, there's definitely ways that clubs can maybe subsidize things to make it more affordable. I've seen you know, uh, clubs like Leicester City, you know, they've given, you know, free drinks and free this and free that because they have amazing owners. Yeah. Um, whereas in general, I think there should always be scales of accessibility. If you want to call it, you know, lower scale where people are still getting something nutritious at a lower price. And of course, if you want to move into, you know, your lobsters and your seafoods, of course, it's going to cost a bit more. Yeah. So I think through what I do in my events, I always try to provide different levels of price ranges um, where something might be £8.50, something might be £13, something might be £25. Um, but there are those different scales to make sure that, you know, regardless of your income, at least you could have something at the event or at something that we're kind of organising. But I think in sports specifically, and I see similar things in petrol stations and cinemas, things are naturally inflated as they are. Um, I think at most football stadiums, 
if you want to buy something to eat, something like a packet of crisps is probably going to cost you about £2.50, which if you go to a corner shop, it might cost you nowadays, probably like 80p or something like that. Yeah. Um, so there is definite inflation in sports in terms of these things. Um, so definitely if they were to bring these more cultural foods into that space, there is plenty of, um, if you want to call it margin available to make sure that these things are affordable. Um, Cause right now I think the margins are crazy um, on a lot of these uh, sport arenas. Just before we um, wrap up and probably draw together our, our, our conversation or this, this wonderful meal, which we've prepared and gone through mm-hmm. step by step. Um, accessibility um, for members of the visible and um, invisible disability community is something which I believe has to be personal to us all for us to actually start to partake in practices which allows for things to become more inclusive Mm -hmm. by design. What ways do you think the food and beverage industry can start taking steps to be more inclusive for members of certain communities and perhaps using Black East London as an example to start with? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we work with a lot of different festivals around the UK, um, such as City Splash, Mighty Hoopla, as I mentioned before, Wide Awake, and we'll be working on wireless this year as well. So I think there's definitely ways that we can help brands to connect with these restaurateurs, these audiences, these communities to help to kind of bring that into their space. And that's through our own experience of working with them in Hackney for you know, years and months for some, a few events for some others, and kind of learning who is ready to kind of step up and take that um, kind of jump mm. to, if you want to call it the corporate world or that kind of thing where you know, it may need to be a little bit more polished or it needs to be presented a certain way or whatever it needs to be. Because obviously as a new business, regardless of your background, there's going to be things you need to do to get to that level where, you know, you're at the kind of, if you want to call it top of the game, you know, no one goes from, well, some people do, they might <laughs> yeah. go from non-league straight to the Premier League, you know, but a lot of them, you know, they will kind of climb through the different leagues as they yep. get to step that by point. Step. Um, so yeah, there definitely are ways of kind of reaching these communities and becoming more diverse. But I think, a lot of it is around like the intentional effort and the resource that you put into these things. It's not going to come organically just like that, just by employing a couple of black people into your office. That's not how things work. Um, You have to invest that time, even for myself when I'm looking at, okay, I want to employ a female photographer. I might have to go and, you know, reach out to 20 female photographers. Maybe 10 of them will get back to me. Maybe five of them will actually get booked in. And then we go from there. So there's a lot of intentional effort that needs to be, dedicated to these spaces to actually make sure it does happen rather than just hoping it happens organically or looking at your existing pool of people and thinking that they must be contained within that. Look outside of what's in front of you and what's around you and what's with your neighbors and explore the world and you will find these people. You just have to be intentional and put the resource into it to make it happen. Hey, as I say, where the mind is, the head will follow. On that note, I think our meet is done. I think we can, uh, Look for our plates to be cleared. But um appreciate the time. Appreciate what you're doing and what more Black Eats London represents. And may continue to be a blueprint and hopefully um, open the doors for many more bis- businesses and um individuals hoping to aspire to see great things in the food and beverage industry. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. And that brings us to the end of this episode of the Leaders in EDI podcast. We want to say a huge thank you to our guests, Jackson McClarty, and to our diversity series partners, Prime Video, IMG, Adidas, and Delta Trey for helping us to bring you the EDI podcast. 
Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do spread the word and send us any thoughts or feedback on LinkedIn or via email at jade.amys at leadersinsport.com or javan.adega at leadersinsport.com. Until next time. <laughs>